This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. There's no ROI on TMI. That's why TD Ameritrade created a learning experience that will actually learn with you. Curated from their vast library of exclusive content, it customizes to fit your investing goals, interests, and needs, so you get exactly the information you need and none of the information you don't. Get started at tdameritrade.com education. Once again, that's tdameritrade.com education. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Bad money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. I'll be your wondering friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate, teach, put it in context. Call me, 1-800-743-CBC, or tweet me, at Jim Kramer. Somebody better tell the consumer that business is slowing. Because after the incredible retail sales number we got this morning, it's clear American shoppers just haven't gotten that negative memo. Don't they know they're supposed to be worried about trade tensions, a deteriorating global economy, or perhaps Brexit? If they knew what Brexit was? Apparently not. Hey, this was a crazy day. Even as the Dow ultimately dipped 24 points, S&P declined 0.34%. NASDAQ lost 0.43%. We started the session with that sharply better than expected retail sales figure. Just an eye-opener. A number so good it made you feel like there is just no way in hell we could be near a recession. Not on the horizon. At the same time, we got a remarkable set of results from J.P. Morgan, nation's largest bank. Company's in amazing shape. And by the way, so is the data about the consumer. When I finished the J.P. Morgan call, which was really terrific, by the way, and melded it with what Citigroup told us yesterday, it made me feel like we're in a bizarre situation where the consumer spending, but spending prudently, not taking too much credit, paying it off on a regular basis. It was one of those barely building and loan moments from It's a Wonderful Life. No, not the timeline where George kills himself and Potter takes over. That's a 2009 version, silly. I'm talking about real ending. A thriving Bedford Falls where everyone has a job and Zuzu's petals reign supreme. By the way, that dovetails perfectly with what we heard last night from one of the largest transportation companies in the country, J.P. Hunt. These truckers told us business is just plain strong, even as the headline said it was disappointing. Again, it made me feel like there's a ton of, of commerce going on. I love it when the truckers are doing well. It suggests that the economy may not be slowing down at all. But just when it felt like everything was going great, we got two spoilers First, Aero Electronics, most important supermarket technology, pre-announced an earnings shortfall tells us business is weak, particularly in Asia. Why? Deteriorating demand conditions. Second, an analyst from Wedbush, a real party pooper, took aim at CarMax, the used car chain. According to Wedbush, the company has seen a pronounced slowdown in sales on a month-to-month basis. Ouch! So who's right? Should we believe the company's painting a positive picture or the one singling doom and gloom? I got an answer you don't like, but it doesn't matter. This economy remains fragile as long as there's the possibility of another flare-up in the trade war. And you know I think that's very likely, unless China bends over backward to demonstrate its good faith by buying a massive amount of soybeans or corn or airplanes that can fly. As Trump said today, quote, we have a long way to go, unquote, when it comes to making a deal with the People's Republic. Does that sound like progress to you? Oh, and that's where our friend Jay Powell comes in. This is a unique moment in American financial history. We have a president who can't help himself. He wants to cause turmoil in the name of a, uh, making America great again. 
what can I say? He loves chaos. He likes confrontation. At the same time, we have a Fed chief who seems so anxious to make amends for his ill-time rate hike back in December that I got to tell you, this guy is looking for any they reason. They know nothing. They know nothing. To cut rates. Any reason he can find. And he's not worried about that strong consumer. He's worried about business. Powell knows that if we have a slowdown, it will be on him. It's his fault because of that last silly rate hike. So he desperately wants to undo that mistake. Look what we saw in the transports after the close. CSX, the big railroad, reported a disappointing quarter. And its stock got shot to pieces. At the same time, United Airlines printed some spectacular numbers. All aboard! And the stock is flying because the consumer is flying! But business cargoes are getting derailed. So even though the consumer's rock solid, Paul has plenty of reason to step on the gas pedal if he wants to. As long as that's his attitude, we can have more days like today. Uh, for example, that hideous pre-announcement from Arrow, it should have crushed tech totally. Instead, the tech cohort barely blinked because the Fed's going to cut rates, so why bother to sell? If we were fighting the Fed, I think the action... I got to say, it would have been very different. It's, it's why Alphabet could rally even when billionaire investor Peter Thiel accused the company of treason and President Trump ran with it. He's going to want the Justice Department to look at it more on that later. It's why Facebook could hang in there, even though its liberal cryptocurrency proposal was skewered by pretty much the whole Senate banking committee today looking very dead in the water. So what do we do? You need to approach the market on a case-by-case basis. Look at the banks. J.P. Morgan's clearly doing incredibly well. The stock was down at one point. Nice opportunity. Goldman Sachs seems to have gotten a lot more consistent with a lot more recurring revenue. It's ready for a new Apple credit card. That could be gigantic. But on the other hand, Wells Fargo missed the numbers, and its stock justifiably got slammed. There's that case again for against buying banking ETFs. Buy the good, not the weak. You see, semiconductor companies like Broadcom, Micron, Intel, analog devices, Texas Instruments, their stocks have been thriving because of the trade talks with China. They seem to be getting a lift from a strong economy. But after the era news, it's all bad. No one wants to own any hardware or software, even Microsoft. More broadly, at the end of the day, you need to understand one thing. When you have a Fed chief who's hell-bent on cutting interest rates uh, because of Brexit, trade talks, whatever he's using, then you should own stocks that benefit from lower rates. And as it happens... That's almost the entire group of the S&P 500, except for Wells Fargo. When you see the transports rally off of J.B. Hunt, you see the excellent retail sales numbers, and it still doesn't deter the Fed from cutting rates, man, you got the makings of a good market. That's why you need to look for opportunities on days like today. Opportunities like, say, by IBM. Just link the key deal with ATT Communications. It's going to help them cement the 5G business together. I, I think it's enough to reason to buy IBM. Well, one of many reasons why I like IBM. Hey, opportunities like Home Depot. It's pulled back today. No particular reason a small firm didn't like it. Or here's two that just naturally pop into my head. Uh, Visa and MasterCard, both down today, even though I think both companies are set to do well after the numbers we've seen from J.P. Morgan and City and that overall retail number. What are they being, doing being down? Oh, you want irony? The two biggest negative calls of the day, CarMax and Arrow, they both finished well off their lows for the day. Arrow only down a buck and a quarter. See what that does? It tells you just how difficult it is to sink a stock when it's floating in the Great Salt Lake that is a benevolent Federal Reserve. So here's the bottom line. You simply cannot fight the Fed when it's coming up with all sorts of flotsam and jets and reasons for why it needs to cut rates. And you can't fight tape. No fighting of the tape when it holds up even in the face of bad news. Those are the rules. You don't like them? Ring the register. No one ever got hurt taking a profit. But I don't think this is the kind of market that's worth running from. As long as the Fed is our friend, it makes sense to buy the stocks of high-quality companies when they go down, even on days like today, when we do indeed have some palpable weakness in multiple sectors. Let's go to Steve in Pennsylvania. Steve! Hey, booyah, Jimmy. Booyah, Steve. What's up? 
I recently added a stock to my Roth IRA where I have about a 10-year time horizon. The stock's had a nice run-up so far, including today. Uh, the valuations are getting a little frothy, so I'm wondering if I should buy more or wait for a pullback. I'd like your uh, view short and long-term on Roku. You know, I, I become a believer on Roku. You know, we had the CEO on. He gave me a very... I have a very persuasive uh, look that this is indeed the way to play cord cutting. Cord cutting continues to go on in a very strong pattern. Now, the stock was up seven today. I thought it might be a beneficiary of something that was happening on Amazon. I got the fire stick for much more than I should have because I bought it last week, and therefore I'm an idiot apropos of absolutely nothing. But, you know, you can't take things personally. Uh, Anyway, I, I like Roku. Not up seven, but I like it. All right, listen up. Sure, no one ever got hurt taking a profit. I'm sure many people did today. But you know what? This market is really not worth running from. I think when it goes down, or certainly good individual stocks, it's worth running too. Hey, on Mad Money Tonight, you know I'm always on the lookout for viable pullbacks. I'm diving into the parent of Applebee's and IHOP to tell you if this company can get a screw back. Then, I'm serving up the deep dish on today's dramatic dominoes decline. Don't miss my exclusive with the CEO. Everyone's talking about it. And after the epic run in the averages, hey, maybe we should get cautious. How about someone who's not been cautious, who's been bullish, who's going cautious? I'm going off the charts to find out. So stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. In unprecedented times, access to the right information can help you make better informed investing decisions. That's why TD Ameritrade is committed to providing a range of relevant educational content, like timely articles, informative webcasts, and access to daily live market news, so you can stay on the path to becoming a smarter investor. Learn more at tdameritrade.com slash market hub. TD Ameritrade, where smart investors get smarter. Whoa, I love flapping a jack. Ooh, I'm always on the lookout for viable pullbacks in high-quality stocks. And that's exactly what we got today in Dine Brands Global, the parent of Applebee's and IHOP, formerly known as Dine Equity. For years, Dime Brands was a serial underperformer. The company just could not get out of its own way. And that week, this only cost longtime CEO Julia Stewart her job in 2017. Then they brought in Stephen Joyce to run the business, and he has executed a magnificent comeback. Last year, the stock rallied 33%, and so far this year, it's up 41%, even after today's nearly $5 pullback. So... I have to tell you, I'm putting my neck right in the uh, pancake here. Uh, I think you should pounce on this pullback. It's exemplary of what I've been talking about for two weeks now during this crazy earnings period already, and I'll tell you why. But first, let me tell you a little story about how Dime Brands got its groove back. The modern-day Dime Brands was created 12 years ago when IHOP acquired Applebee's. The deal was supposed to be CEO Julia Stewart's crowning achievement, but it took place right before the financial crisis and the stock ended up plummeting to the single digit shortly after the merger was completed. Ugly. Like many other stocks that cratered during the Great Recession, Dine came roaring back along with the rest of the economy. 
with the stocks uh, surging to 115 at their peak in 2015. Not bad, huh? Then everything fell apart again. By August of 2017, Dine Equity was a $36 stock. Brutal. So what went wrong? A lot of things. First, Applebee's had been stagnant for a while, but then it became a serious underperformer with same-store sales down 6 or 7% for most of 2017. Very hard to come back from. Then IHOP, which had previously been one of the most consistent restaurant brands around, started showing weakness of its own. Now, Stewart blamed the weakness on the company's franchise-heavy business model. They didn't have enough control over the franchises. To turn things around, they needed more control. Their locations needed a lot of investment to improve the experience, and that just wasn't happening. After putting still one more disappointing quarter in 2017, well, you know what happened? Well, Julia Stewart resigned. You know, he was liked her on the show, but she resigned. And it takes Dine Equity nearly six months to find a replacement. Eventually, they settled on Stephen Joyce, who takes over in September of 2017. Now, do you know the stock literally bottomed, literally bottomed the day before the announcement? And this stock has not looked back. I mean, talk about a turn in the flap stack. How has Joyce pulled off this miraculous rebound? First, he took a few months to figure out what the company needed. Then in February of last year, he rolled out his plan. And even before the rollout, the numbers had already started picking up, especially at Applebee's. So what was his plan? Okay, first he rebranded the company from Dine Equity to Dine Brand Superficial, but catchy. Then he announced a bunch of growth initiatives. Joyce had shifted resources away from headquarters directly to Applebee's and IHOP, so they'd be able to more quickly respond to changes in the competitive environment. You know, people want... More taco stuff, you know, and you get it. I mean, this is certainly more in sync. How many days old is this food? Can I eat it without dying? You can eat it. it just, we just got it. Oh, okay, because it just, it just got, apparently, it hurt. Um, now, he brought in a new leadership team. He embraced analytics to figure, not as good as Barcia Miguel, if, to figure out their customers. My mother always said you cannot talk with food in your mouth. So just a second. It's out of respect to my mother. Shut up. Okay, now, and then the, the, what they want. At the same time, Joyce invested in technology to make the stores more efficient, build a better takeout platform. We know how important that is. Finally, he used his new consumer insights to make better. I'm sorry that I said shut up. That was very bad. I, 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 can I cut that out? I thought it was a shout out. No, that was, I said shout out. I didn't say yeah, shut up. Yeah, that's bad. Shout out. Anyway, they wanted them to use strategic decisions for each brand. It makes their advertising more effective. It helps boost traffic, helps them figure out what new menu items to introduce. This is about artificial intelligence right here, right in front of us. However, there was also a catch. Joyce also slashed Dine Brands' dividend. I mean, that was something that not a lot of people were expecting. You know what I mean? Um, and, and, you know, slashed it. That's better. Wall Street had long expected from 97 cents to 63 cents a share. Company needed the extra capital to invest in the business, but he also expressed confidence in his ability to gradually grow the dividend over time. Finally, Dime Brands introduced its very own five-year plan, like the five years it's going to take to clean up this mess. They forecasted low single-digit same-store sales growth with earnings growth in the high teens and 10% margin expansion, resulting in total annual shareholder returns of roughly 20%, and that's after the dividend slash. In response... The stock, it caught fire. And it's continued to run and run and run as management's been able to deliver on its promises. 
Last year, Dime Brands posted a series of excellent quarters. In fact, the plan is going so well that they're expanding the store count and really pushing the delivery business, where they have a partnership with DoorDash. Boy, are they everywhere. Talk about venture capital money. This February, we learned that Applebee's franchisees had agreed to temporarily spend more money on advertising. It's very hard to get the franchisees on board, but Joyce did it. Remember, that's what Easterbrook did at McDonald's to first start turning that operation down. Get this. As a result, Applebee's, remember I told you it was low, uh, mid to single digit down? They posted 7.7% same-store sales growth in the fourth quarter of last year. That's an extraordinary turn. At the same time, we restructured the company's debt, shut down underperforming stores that were bleeding money. Those numbers were so good that the stock exploded higher in February. Most of the gains for 2019 came from that epic run in the first couple months of the year. But the turnaround plans keep paying off. And in recent weeks, it looked like the stock had caught fire again. That isn't today when it ran headfirst into a brick wall. More on that later. When Dime Brands reported its last quarter at the beginning of May, the company delivered a mixed quarter. While the earnings were better than expected, the same store sales numbers were weaker than anticipated. Apple East was only up 1.8. IHOP up 1.2. When Wall Street was looking for 3.4 and 2.3, respectively. But on the other hand, management reiterated every line of their previous guidance, suggesting that they still have confidence in the future. I wasn't worried by this seemingly mixed quarter, and I'm going to tell you why. The reason the same store sales look weak, it's because this was the first quarter when Dime Brands was lapping positive comparisons. What matters to me is that the earnings power was so impressive. Now, the stock tumbled 4% on the news before rallying 4% the next day. As investors realized the quarter was actually better than it looked. This company's not well followed. It's not in the media. It's got a kind of a, let's say, information uh, vacuum. Dime Brand started bouncing again, although in recent weeks, the stock's lost its momentum and it got pulverized today. What happened? Well, there's an outfit called Bloomberg Intelligence, from an arm of Bloomberg. Basically, they're in-house analysts. They're pretty good. Published a note saying that Applebee's same-store sales may struggle in the quarter they're about to report. They're worried about the tough comparisons as Applebee saw its same-store sales increase by 5.7% in the period last year. In effect, they're arguing that the easy money here has already been made. Now, legitimate, legitimate. The comparisons with dime brands do get tougher going forward. But I think the stock is more upside, in part because it's so darn cheap. It sells for less than 12 times next year's earnings estimates, for heaven's sake. 2.9% yield, which means something in the environment where the benchmark tenure 2.1. Bottom line, Stephen Joyce has engineered a spectacular and completely and totally unheralded comeback at Dime Brands. No one's talking about this, at least until today when they sold it down. By embracing technology in order to figure out what his customers really want, he's a winner. Yes, the stock has had an incredible run, but I think it's worth buying on any meaningful pullback. And that's exactly what we got today, thanks to that thoughtful Bloomberg intelligence note about tough comparisons. Don't get me wrong. The comparisons do get more difficult. But the stock is so cheap that I think it's worth the risk. How sweet it is. Actually, there's nothing in here. All right, let's go to Emil in Illinois. Emil. Hey, Jim, how you doing? First time caller, so I got to get a booyah in. Booyah! I like that. There you go. I mean, I got to tell you, you know, I say, what's happening? Shake Shack has had an amazing year, and it's currently trading about 60% above its market value year-to-date, yes. with a market cap of $2.7 billion and plenty of room to grow. Do you think it has the potential to be the next Chipotle of burgers? Um, you know, a lot of people felt that originally, and then it kind of faltered. Using Chipotle as an example is pretty... I don't know. That's pretty high. St- the bar's too high. But look, the numbers were good with Shake Shack. The numbers are good. It is far more expensive than some of the other restaurants that I follow, though. So take it with a grain of salt. They are on a roll. It's a good spec. How about Robert in California? Robert. 
An earthquake shake booyah from Southern California. Always worried about those. Was in one myself when I lived there. How can I help? I want to say thanks for Confessions of an Addict. It allowed me to trust the wisdom of a man who knows investing and to then read Real Money to begin my own path to learning. Back at the end of October, you interviewed Charles Morrison, and the result was a positive support of Wingstop. I did my own homework, thanks to Get Rich Carefully, another great, great piece of work, and I bought the stock November the 8th at $67.80. Since then, with dividends as well, the stock's gone to 97 and change. Somebody's selling, but others have done their homework well, and are buying. <laughs> You so know, what do I do? Hold okay, Robert, we had, an outfit called, on dips. we had an outfit that I like very much called Web. Thank you for the kind comments about every single book that I've written. We had a, a, a very interesting piece by uh, an outfit called Wedbush saying that the target had been reached and the stock's too high. Do you know historically that's exactly what I'm teaching you? Wait for those opportunities and then you... Bye, bye, bye. Because Morrison's doing a great job. I got to tell you, I think he is one hell of an operator and I think that Wingstop is one hell of a stock Sometimes I dream that perhaps one day I can own 23 wing stops in my own hometown of Philadelphia. But you know what? It better start happening soon. Hey, look at this mess. It's all cleaned up. And yet here I was about to slash the... Never mind. Sure, Dime Brands has had an incredible run. Look, do I ever not use every chance to put the Bowie knife out? But I still think it's worth buying on this pullback we got today. And what a comeback the company's made. I think it's worth the risk. You know, there's much more Mad Bunny today's Domino shares talk about getting singed, if not burned. They got crushed. So is it time to buy or take a pass? I've got the exclusive with the CEO everybody's talking about. Then is it time to approach the market with fear and trembling? i got to go off the charts with someone who's been so bullish to find out. And i got a little memo there for the Facebook uh, witch hunters and the Google people who don't like that either. I, you're going to love that, believe me. And uh, so is uh, Senator Joe McCarthy, who's rolling over in his grave. Stay with Craig. This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. Investing isn't one size fits all. Every investor has a unique style. That's why TD Ameritrade offers two different mobile apps. There's TD Ameritrade Mobile, which lets you manage your portfolio with streamlined simplicity. Or Thinkorswim Mobile, which gives you tools you need for more advanced trades and in-depth analysis. Visit tdameritrade.com apps to find the one that's right for you. Once again, that's tdameritrade.com slash apps. What the heck just happened to the stock of Domino's Pizza? This morning, the gigantic pizza chain reported it was widely perceived as a disappointing quarter. That's the second serious disappointment this year. Stock got pummeled today, down $23 and change, or nearly 9% response. But when you drill down, you have to wonder if making the markets, well, maybe the market's overreacting here. Wall Street freaked out over the domestic same-store sales. They were up just 3% when people were looking for 4.6%. At the same time, the total revenue came in a bit light, up to 5.1% for the year. Uh, the year-over-year number, I expected better there. I did. On the other hand, though, Domino's did deliver excellent earnings, $2.19 per share. Wall Street was only expecting 2 dollars two. Hey, maybe the revenue growth was slower, but that growth is more profitable. Nobody cared about the earnings beat today, though. The sellers were all focused on the same-store sales. So has this stock become too tough to own, or is the company simply going through an adjustment period that you simply need to wait out? Let's take a closer look with Rich Allison, the CEO of Domino's Pizza. Learn more about the quarter and where his company's headed. Mr. Allison, welcome back to Mad Money. 
Hi, Jim. Thanks for having me on the show. All right, Rich. We all know the stock was down $23. What I like to do when I see something like that is to give the floor to the CEO to say why you can get that money back and then some if you play the long game with Domino's. You know, Jim, uh, when you take a look at our business, you know, we still gained a significant uh, amount of market share in the pizza category during the second quarter. Our retail sales were up 6.8%, which is significantly higher than the growth in the category and frankly, much higher than the growth in the restaurant industry in general. So while same store sales at 3% was at uh, the lower end of our long-term outlook, the overall retail sales growth driven by the combination of that same store sales and really strong unit growth was still quite positive. Okay, so Rich, though, but throughout the discussion in the conference call, there was a lot of talk about uh, these third-party aggregators, the pressure they're putting on it. There are labor pressures that are definitely a problem. There's some discounting going on. Uh, Domino's Pizza remains a great value. But it made me think that perhaps something structural has changed in the U.S. that could make it tougher to get back to that uh, more of the mid-range or to the 6% that you really like to hit. We know, Jim, it is a tougher operating environment than it has been in years past. We do have new competition uh, in the marketplace that we're fighting against every day. And there are labor pressures in the marketplace. You know, certainly the tight employment environment and some of the rising uh, minimum wages across the country are putting some pressure on. But we are really in a position of strength as we enter into this more turbulent period. 2018, our average store in the U.S. had operating cash flow as measured by EBITDA of $141,000. So our franchisees are very healthy. Cash on cash returns in the business are really strong. And I think that's why when you take a look at what's going on with units, you know, we opened 45 units in the second quarter in the U.S. and only closed three. It's still a very healthy business model. And I think you know, we're positioned quite well as we look forward relative to the rest of, rest of the restaurant industry to continue to be successful. All right. Well, how about the international markets? Well, you did say that there were some near-term challenges for comps that continue. What can make those turn around? Well, Jim, you know, we are, we're working hand-in-hand with our master franchisees around the world. You know, as you look from market to market, the issues in, in markets can be different, you know, depending upon those specific circumstances. But What we're trying to do is work with the markets to bring some of the the same terrific data-driven decision-making that we've used to grow the business in the U.S. over a number of years now and help our international markets uh, in that regard. But, you know, broadly, you you take a look at the international business, uh, retail sales up 9.8% in the second quarter. So gaining share uh, at a significant pace in the international markets as well. Great growth in the international markets this past quarter with 158 net store openings. So it remains a very healthy business, despite the comps over the last few quarters being, you know, on the lower end. Right, well, Rich, let's go back to this third party aggregator. Uh, I know I talked to all of them. I talked to DoorDash. I talked to Postmates. I talked to Grub, uh, Grubhub. Uh, and what I continue, Uber, what I continue to find is they may want to be in this business. They charge the actual company a fortune, 20, sometimes 25, sometimes 30 percent. Why do they represent a real challenge, given the fact that the, it's difficult for, the, for your competitors to not have to raise price dramatically and make Domino's much cheaper? Yeah, I think part of what we're going to see here in the near term is that, uh, you know, there's so much uh, investor subsidy into that business model right now 
we're not really sure where it's going to shake out long term because there's substantial discounting and overinvestment in advertising right now to drive consumer demand. We don't know how that's going to shake out once consumers actually have to pay the full cost of that delivery because those fees are quite substantial relative to the cost of the underlying food. I think we also have not yet seen what's going to happen with the supply of restaurants on these platforms as, as well. You know, over time, it'll be proven out whether or not that business is truly incremental and whether or not that business is actually accretive from a margin standpoint, you know, to the operators that are offering that service through the third party aggregators. So long term, still a lot of questions, but short term, you know, certainly some pressure. You're the first person to say on air exactly where I was going, which is that they're playing with free money, Rich, these aggregators. They are hard to beat because the stock market is ready to finance them. That's who you're up against. I don't think I think that's transient. That's why I think that Domino's can come back. This is really, yes, we can't create more people. We're pretty near maxed out on what technology can do. But you are in an unnatural war with players that are being subsidized by us in the stock market. Yeah, and we're not going to do foolish things, you know, in the short term in reaction. You know, Jim, we're still very focused on our franchisees' profitability. That's first and foremost in our minds and still very focused on generating great returns and free cash flow for our investors. You know, we're generating cash flow now at a pace of about a million dollars a day uh, in the Domino's business. So, you know, some, some near-term activity here that's creating some turbulence in the marketplace, but we're going to remain focused on our long-term strategy, great profitability for our franchisees, and strong operating cash flow and returns for our investors. Last question. I do not hear you say, look, this is the new norm. We are adjusting our rate to from uh, three to six from to one to three or three to four. You're not doing any of that. You're sticking by your targets, and you think you can go back to where you were. No change to our outlook uh, on same-store sales, uh, store growth, or retail sales growth. All right. Do you mind if we hold you to it? Thanks, Jim. All right. Thank you to Rich Allison, CEO of Domino's. Look, when they're down 23, you don't look for another reason to be down 23. You take a look and see maybe it's the right thing to buy. You decide. I still like the pizza a lot. Man, money's back after the break. After the epic run in the averages, is it time to get more cautious? With the S&P 500 above 3,000, do we need to pull in our horns? Hey, it's a good question. So now we're going off the charts with the help of Carly Garner. She's that brilliant technician who's the co-founder of the Carly Trading and the author of Higher Probability Commodity Trading. We need a more quantitative, let's just say, empirical look that's not emotional to get a read on this market. Ever since the meltdown late last year, that's the, remember, that's the pal bear market, Garner's been bullish on the stock market. That's one of the reasons why I like her. She's been dead right. But all along, she has been using 3,000 as her target for the S&P. Well, here we are. Now Garner thinks it is time to get more cautious. I like a person who, when they hit the price target, doesn't just say, let's bump the price target. She rethinks. Why? She says there's a legitimate argument that much of the good news is already priced into the market. Look, we're already expecting multiple rate cuts from the Fed, right? We heard that again today with Steve Leisman's interview. We've got record unemployment. It's the longest economic expansion in U.S. history. And people also predict a certain amount of progress in negotiations with the Chinese, which we certainly didn't get today. And that's why Garner believes we're due for a breather, not a disaster, a breather. 
Let's go through our argument point by point. First, take a look at this chart, which shows the pattern of seasonality in the S&P 500 of the past 15 years. Well, the old sell in May and go away saw, hey, you know, that hasn't worked in ages. There are other seasonal trends with a lot more staying power. Gardner notes that the S&P tends to peak in late July. Okay, this is historical patterns over a 15-year aggregate. Late July, and then trade down through late August. Sometimes that weakness spills over into September and October. In most years, it's followed by a terrific rally. Although that's certainly not not what happened in 2018 during the Powell bear market. And that's the thing about betting on seasonal patterns. They're far from a sure thing. But they happen more often than they don't. Definitely something to keep in mind. The real crux of Garner's thesis, though, is sentiment. We often hear that this rally is hated. But is that true? She says the truth is it's only hated by the vocal minority of money managers who've missed it and desperately need stocks to go lower so they can catch up with the averages. Garner points out that the consensus bullish index reports that over 60 percent of industry insiders they polled are bullish. Over 60 people like this market, which is not what we want to see. Remember, we want people who don't like it who have to be converted to bulls, not bulls who get converted to bulls. They're already there. At the same time, take a look at the CNN Money, Fear, and Creed Index. I like this one. Measures put to call ratios, volatility, momentum, junk bond demand. Give you a rough gauge of sentiment. On the one hand, the Fear and Greed Index is definitely in greedy territory, okay? On the other hand, though, it is less greedy than we've seen in previous rallies. You could argue this means that the market is more upside. Garner's more concerned with the trajectory here. She points out that the Fear and Greed Index has been making lower highs and lower lows, which suggests that the potential upside here is probably limited, at least for the time being. This chart did not make me as fearful as she seemed to indicate, but that's okay because we're looking at an aggregate group. Like, what else? As Garner told us at the end of May, speculators may have gotten ahead of themselves with their predictions for multiple rate cuts this year. I like what I've been hearing from Fed Chief Jay Powell, said that at the top of the show, but if we only get one rate cut or even two, Maybe there will be people disappointed. That's nuts, but there might be. How about earnings season? The fact is the averages have rallied coming into this earnings period, and she says that's really a good sign. Garner points out that the general pattern going into earnings is usual a counter-trend move. In other words, if the S&P pulls back into earnings, it's likely to bounce after we see the numbers. I've been telling you this myself. If it rallies in earnings, it's likely to dip on the actual results. That's one more reason Garner thinks the path of least resistance for this market might be lower, at least for the time being in the near term. Okay, now I want you to check out, let's get technical here. Let's check out the chart of the E-mini S&P 500 futures. All right, this is really, I know, I mean, it's kind of a Mondrian meets uh, Rothko here. But uh, there are a few salient issues. First, the S&P is brushing up against a powerful ceiling of resistance. The trend line that began at the climax of the historic 2018 rally suggests that the S&P has a ceiling somewhere between 3,035 and 3,060. Now, given that it's currently trading at 3,004, you could easily argue that there's not a lot of upside left, okay? Second, look at the relative strength index of the RSI down at the bottom, okay? This is an important momentum indicator that's currently hovering in the high 60s, near, nearly 70. Uh, once again, it breaks above 70. We're in overbought territory. Garner notes that the S&P is rarely capable of maintaining price levels after that happens. By the same token, the Williams percentage R indicator, that's an oscillator, which tells you when a security has gotten overbought or oversold, is an extreme overbought territory. It's something that my friend uh, who writes to be at Real Money, Helene Meisler, pointed out. and She's been one of my favorite technicians since the 80s. So uh, this, this suggests the S&P has come up too far too fast. When both of these oscillators are extreme highs, you often see the same pattern. The buying starts to dry up and a correction, 
there's the key word begins. So let's say Garner's right that we may be due for a pullback. How deep could it be? Well, that depends on the news. But she wouldn't be shocked to see the S&P plunge down to the mid-2700s. That's big. That'd be a pretty, uh, you know, it's a pretty normal trading range, given that we've got a floor of support at 2750. Of course, if things get really bad, she thinks that we could drift down to 2470. But she doesn't expect to see either of those levels. Those would be um, serious corrections. How about the Nasdaq 100? Look at that one. This is the 100 largest non-financials Nasdaq composite. Let's take a longer view with tech and look at the Nasdaq 100's monthly charts. So you're going back all the way back to 2009. Right now, the Nasdaq 100 is attempting to break out above the ceiling. I mean, this is pretty pretty important move here. And the resistance level is 7,835. Now, we're already above that level just today. Uh, but this is a monthly chart. So we need a monthly close before the breakout is what we call confirmed. For Gardner, Gardner says mixed picture. On the one hand, she could see the NASDAQ 100 make a break for 8,455 in the near future. Not bad. The next ceiling resistance. In fact, when we checked in with her in April, she specifically told us that a breakout above 7,835 would likely lead to a sharp run up to 8,455. That would be a 6.6% gain from these levels. Remember, she's been bullish the whole way. However, Garner also notes that breakouts can be tricky. Sometimes breakouts are fakeouts. Putting it all together, the pace and the trajectory of this tech rally is like nothing we've seen since the dot-com bubble. That doesn't mean the NASDAQ 100 can't move still higher, but it does give Garner pause. She thinks the odds of a further rally beyond 8,455 are very low. Not only will we run into resistance at that level, but all sorts of indicators will start flashing red. Right now, the RSI is around 65. We'll absolutely cross above 70 if the NDX rallies another 500 points from here. And as I told you before, that's overbought. And the Williams percentage R oscillator is already nearly nearing maxed out levels, not just on the monthly chart, but also on the daily and the weekly. Now, Garner says the Williams percentage R can stay overbought for a while before it triggers a sell-off. But this reading is definitely something that should make you more cautious. If she's right. If the rally stalls, or if we get all the way to 8,455 and then turn around, what comes next? Garner says she'd expect a normal correction, which would take the NASDAQ 100 down to 6,700 or 59,10. Normal correction. I say, ouch. Let me give you the bottom line from this whole picture. After the epic run in the averages, the charts as interpreted by Carly Garner suggests that the upside in the stock market has gotten more limited. Remember, she liked it all the way down. This is substantial. But it's possible she's being too cautious. Her general point is correct, though. The risk word up here, it's simply not as it was good a month or two ago. That's the important takeaway, and stick with Kramer. It is time! And then the lighting round is over. Are you ready? Skate down. Time for the lighting round. I'm going to start with Christoph in Mississippi. Christoph. How you doing, young man? Thank you. What's up? Uh, I got a call at a FYMC. Symantec. Travel. I missed that. Symantec? I think Symantec. Yes. I think Symantec is under the tutelage of the interim CEO Rick Hill, which means bye, bye, bye. That's the man with the minus touch, Bruce and Washington. Bruce. Hi, Jim. Calling from Gig Harbor, Washington. Excellent. Wondering if I should continue the whole Clorox. Okay, Clorox is a really good example of the kind of forgiveness market I'm talking about. The last quarter wasn't that good, and yet here's the stock breaking out. If it's breaking out on bad news, what the heck would happen if there's good news? So stay along the stock. Let's go to Deepak 
in New York, Deepak. Booyah, Jim. How are you doing today? I am having a good day, Deepak. How about you? I'm doing wonderful. Hey, um, I just want to thank you for all that you do. Also, want to shout out to my dad. He's been watching your show religiously for years. He's totally going to freak out when he sees this. Father, son, um, mother, daughter, generational. <laughs> love it. I stick around to play for you. Let's go to work, Deepak. So I'm asking about a stock that I own already. It's recovered quite well from the December slump, but I think it has some more steam left. I just might, I just need a green light from you. Um, I'm asking about United Rentals. It's funny, my old URI. friend Stephanie Link and I talk very, very lovingly about URI. It's actually a terrific play on the strength of the domestic economy, which remains good. I think URI is excellent. I like your thought. I need to go to o- Uzuma in Texas. Uzuma! Jim. <laughs> Booyah! Booyah! <laughs> My question is about Qualys. Why hasn't it risen? Why hasn't it risen? Because I think it's in a crowded market, frankly. I mean, there's a lot of companies that are in that kind of business intelligence space and information technology, security risk, compliance. It is too much of a me-too company, but perhaps Qualys wants to call them on and tell Jim Cramer why it's not a me-too and actually the best of the best. They are welcome, Sal in Texas. Sal. Hey, Jim, I hope you're having a great day, and thanks for taking my call. You're quite welcome. I wanted to uh, quickly get your thoughts on Malibu Boat. No, Malibu Boat. Oh, MB, no, no, they, they got to get a better, they, gotta, they need a bigger boat. I think that the problem with Malibu is also like a problem with Brunswick. That boat market has gotten softer. All that said, I would prefer Brunswick than I would. I mean, it's like kind of the end. Malibu and Brunswick are the opposite of Dollar Tree and Dollar General. Dollar Tree and Dollar General are flying, and the boat business is just okay. What does that tell you about America? It's a barbell, right? But it's leaning like this. Let's go to Brian in Colorado. Brian. Hey, Jim. Um, what's your thoughts on Illumina? You know, that last quarter wasn't that good. It really wasn't. I mean, I was kind of taking it back. It said to me, buy Danner. That's what I would do if I were you. And that, ladies and gentlemen, good of the lightning round. The lightning round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Some days, some days it feels like we've just gone off the deep end here. Just look at what Peter Thiel, the billionaire investor, is trying to pull with Alphabet, the parent company of Google. It's like something out of the Manchurian candidate. Hey, kids, look that one up. He's saying the company's been infiltrated by enemies of the state. And I feel like these kinds of unsubstantiated accusations, I think they could take us to a very dangerous place. Look, there are endless good reasons to criticize an $800 billion company like Alphabet. But Thiel, I don't think he has a good reason. You need to understand that Thiel is a high-profile supporter of President Trump. And he's making extraordinary charges of treason against Google. He wants the FBI and the CIA to investigate the company in order to find out how many foreign intelligence agencies have infiltrated their Manhattan Project for Artificial Intelligence. Theo wants to know if Google's senior management considers itself to be thoroughly infiltrated by Chinese intelligence. By the way, Google barely does any business in China. This is a company that stood up to the Chinese Communist Party in defense of free speech, and it got punished for it. Google's done more to fight against China's bad behavior than nearly any other business that I know I can think of. But now Peter Thiel's wondering if Google's so thoroughly infiltrated by the Chinese that he muses, quote, they have engaged in the seemingly treasonous decision to work with the Chinese military and not with the U.S. military, end quote. Google's response, as we have said before, we do not work with the Chinese military, end quote. Take a look at this dramatic exchange that occurred moments ago between Senator Blumenthal and a Google exec. 
have you found any evidence of infiltration of your management or your private data by Chinese intelligence? Absolutely not, Senator. Has Google made any decision about its contracts with the United States government based on pressure or in consultation with China? Absolutely not. Has Google turned over or in any way turned a blind eye to a leak of its software or private data to Chinese intelligence? Absolutely not. We take extremely seriously that the, the threat of uh, any penetration of our systems. People, this is heady stuff. I don't know if Teal's making this stuff up or he's delusional, but either way, it's dangerous because the president takes them seriously. He wants the Justice Department to look into the charges. People throw around the word McCarthyism a lot, but on this issue, it really feels like a legitimate comparison. Back in the 1950s, you had to publicly declare your loyalty to the United States and deny being a member of the Communist Party. If you refused to name names of who were, your life was ruined, and in some cases, you got sent to prison. The worst thing is that Thiel knows exactly what he's doing. He added that, and I quote, these questions need to be asked by the FBI or the CIA, and I would like them to be asked in a not excessively gentle manner, end quote. Whoa, hey, that's messed up. I don't know what Peter Thiel's problem with Google is, but it sure feels like he's using his connections with the White House to settle some private scores, target his political opponents. So I need to make this crystal clear. Peter Thiel is about to ruin lives. Ruin lives. I was not surprised when President Trump took the Thiel's comments and ran with them. Remember, one of Trump's best friends was the late Roy Cohn, who served as the chief counsel of Senator Joe McCarthy of McCarthyism fame. The president's initial tweet gives the appearance that he'd like to do something along the lines with Thiel's suggesting. But, man, before we start cracking down on Google, I'd like to know if there's any hard evidence on this at all. Thiel did found a major uh, cybersecurity company, Palantir, and he is a member of the board of Facebook. Maybe he knows something we don't. But if that's the case, he needs to share his evidence. Otherwise, I am not going to take these claims seriously. Does he really have names? Does he know how many card-carrying members of the Chinese Communist Party are working with an alphabet? Should we bring back the House Un-American Activities Committee? Is there a new Joe McCarthy needed in the Senate? This is really ugly stuff. And it's all possible now because Thiel's turned his accusations up to an 11. I think he needs to dial it back before we end up in some kind of horrible McCarthy witch hunt. That's the last thing I want. Although in this crazy environment, it sure wouldn't shock me. You want to learn about America? What you do is you take the CSX second quarter conference call. You turn to the highlights page. Chemicals, okay, ag and food, good, forest product, good, minerals, good. But then look at these intermodal bed, coal bed, fertilizer, flat, other, down, nine. Then you take the pastiche of what you were looking for, you match it against this mosaic, and you have a sense about whether things are better or worse. And I come out and say, I don't know, I think a little worse. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC.